Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I spent the last eight months analyzing Jim Melgar's murder and the investigation that followed in excruciating detail. We spent weeks analyzing the crime scene, weeks on medical evidence, and months on the initial police investigation. We picked apart expert testimonies and brought in experts of our own to get a clearer picture of what happened on December 22, 2012. I've interviewed witnesses never heard from before and, I hope, managed to bring Jim to light and help us understand who he was as a husband, a father, and a friend. And now it's time to shift from the past to the present. I don't believe that Sandy Melgar killed her husband, but someone did. And now it's time to figure out who. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. What do we know about Jim Melgar's murder? I mean, really know. Setting aside all of the speculation and just looking at the facts. Jim Melgar was alive and well at 9.33 p.m. on Saturday, December 22, 2012, when he was seen on a surveillance video walking into CVS to buy drink mixers. And he was deceased at 4.30 p.m. on Sunday, December 23rd, when he was found stabbed to death in his closet by Maria Melgar. Jim suffered an extremely violent attack. He sustained over 50 injuries, many of which were defensive in nature. He did not go down without a fight. His ankles were bound with a phone cord. Ligature marks are clearly visible in crime scene photos, and there's consistent blood spatter on his shins, ankles, and bindings. Jim is found with a red braided rope running underneath his left leg and buttock. 
The rope then wrapped around his torso and contained a slip knot loop or a lasso on the end. But the rope was not tied in any way that would restrain him. He suffered only one arterial bleed, a deep gouge between his right thumb and forefinger, and that is a common defensive wound. The blood pattern indicates that the attack began with Jim standing in the doorway of the closet. That's where he sustained the wound to his right hand. It's my analysis that the blood spatter also indicates that Jim turned his back towards his attacker or attackers and moved toward the back of the closet, as indicated by the projected spatter on the file cabinet, the drip marks on the floor, the downward projected pattern on the right side of the back wall, and the transfer pattern on the closet rod shelf and sleeves of the shirts just in front of his gun. Jim suffered skull fractures on the right rear of his head and the front left of his face. Once he was on the ground, we find cast-off patterns on the wall that projected from his right shoulder up and to the left. Blood has been transferred to the safe in the closet, on the front and back of the handle. Jim's tox screen was clean, and he had a blood alcohol level of .06. There were indications of burglars rummaging through drawers and jewelry boxes in several rooms. According to Sandy, Liz, and Tammy Armstrong, there was a small flat-screen TV missing from the master bedroom. There was a space in the entertainment center in the living room with an HDMI cable hanging out of it, and there was a backpack found in the garage containing an Xbox, Xbox games, and jewelry. The backpack, games, and jewelry all contained unknown DNA, both male and female. According to Sandy, there were several prescription drugs missing from the house. There was also an iPad and other small electronics reported missing. Two of the Melgar's dogs were found locked into the office, and two were running free. Both the front and back doors were found closed and locked, but the garage door was found wide open, and the door from the garage into the house was unlocked. There was a large knife, two towels, and a size medium women's shirt found in the water in the jacuzzi tub. There was no blood detected in any of the sinks, showers, washing machine, or drains. All experts agree that Jim's killer would have been covered in blood. Sandy was found in the master bathroom closet. Her ankles were bound, and her arms were bound behind her back, forearms parallel to each other, right wrist to left elbow, and vice versa. The closet door was barricaded shut from the outside with a chair that is normally kept inside the closet. There was no pillow sham or rug found under the chair, under the door, or in the closet. Sandy had urinated and defecated in her underwear. Not a single drop of blood was found on Sandy. None of Jim's DNA was found on her, and none of her DNA was found on or near Jim's body. Sandy's hands were free from any injuries. She suffered a hematoma on her head a black eye, and bruising on her forearms consistent with the ligatures discovered and removed by Herman Melgar. There are no reports or evidence that there were any problems in the Melgar's marriage. In fact, the exact opposite is true. And lastly, unknown DNA was found in multiple locations on the crime scene, including on the closet doorknob and on Sandy's bindings. Those are the facts of the case. Everything beyond that is circumstance, speculation, and theories. I, for one, don't believe that this evidence, 
any one element or all of it in its entirety in any way proves or even suggests that Sandy Melgar murdered her husband in cold blood on the night that they were celebrating their 32nd wedding anniversary. So Sandy didn't kill Jim. Who did? As I start to shift my investigation into alternate suspects, I'm going to launch into our new investigation with the detective work that was completed before the trial. Not the lazy and inadequate investigation by Sean Corozal and the Harris County Sheriff's Office, but the one that was performed by defense investigator Billy Belk. Billy Belk's testimony begins with the reciting of his resume, which is pretty damn impressive if you ask me. Belk began his career as a Houston police officer right out of high school. He was certified as a patrol officer in 1977 and worked for HPD for 32 years. During his 32 years on the force, Billy never stood still with his education. He went to college to obtain a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and didn't stop there. In 2003, he earned his doctorate in jurisprudence and passed the bar exam, at which point he became a licensed attorney while still serving on the police force as a detective. Belk was promoted to sergeant and moved into the Homicide Division in 1983 at 24 years old. He worked in homicide from 1983 until his retirement in 2009. He did, however, take a brief sabbatical from investigating homicides during those 26 years to work undercover investigating crooked cops. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Belk spent five years working in the Proactive Internal Affairs Division, where he worked undercover investigating police corruption. And aside from that brief stint cleaning up the internal streets of the HPD, Belk spent four years in homicide working in the Sex Crimes Division, and then he was transferred into what he refers to as the, quote, Day Shift Murder Squad. From the transcript. So in 1987, I began investigating murders, capital murders, kidnappings, aggravated assaults, until and I remained on the murder squad until my 20th year on the department, where the chief transferred me to the Internal Affairs Division to investigate police corruption. Also, during his stint with HPD, Belk spent two and a half years helping to create the Cold Case Division. If I could sum up Billy Belk's resume in one sentence, I would say that he is by far the most qualified and experienced witness that testified at this trial. To summarize, he spent his entire adult life working in law enforcement, He's a decorated homicide detective, he's skilled in cold case investigations, and he knows firsthand how corrupt cops work. And he's a fucking lawyer. 
He knows the law both on the streets and inside the courtroom. Before digging into the case, Mack wants to make clear to the jury that Belk is not one of those bought and paid for defense witnesses. He has testified in court many, many times. Always, literally every time except this one, he's testified for the prosecution side, including testifying for Colleen Barnett as a state's witness in previous cases. To put it mildly, he's a very credible witness. And Mack puts everything out on the table before he moves on to the case-specific questions. We learn in direct that Belk was paid $10,000 for his investigative services. At the time of this testimony, he had put in 254 hours of work, which amounts to about 38 bucks an hour. Belk even puts that into perspective by testifying that he charges $250 an hour as an attorney. So with all of that on the table, let's see why he chose this particular case to make his very first appearance as a witness for the defense. We begin with Belk explaining which materials he's reviewed as part of his investigation. From the transcript. Mac, have you reviewed the offense reports, the original through Supplement 62? Yes, sir. Have you reviewed all the crime scene photos and videos? Yes, sir. Have you reviewed all Harris County Institute of Forensic Science, which again is the morgue, medical examiner, all the autopsies, reports, photos, x-rays, and anthropological report? Yes, sir. In this case, there were several reported interviews of witnesses conducted by the Harris County Sheriff's Department. Did you listen to and review the recorded interviews of Melanie Esman? I did. Herman Melgar? I did. Maria Melgar? Yes, sir. Monica Melgar? Yes, sir. Gerson Campos? Yes, sir. The transcript of the translation of Herman and Maria's interviews? Yes, sir. Interview of Carlos Espinoza? Yes, sir. Interview of John Marlboro? I've listened to the recordings. I haven't interviewed them. Thank you. Have you listened to and watched very carefully the audio-video recordings of Sandy Melgar's interrogation conducted by Carazal and Doucet? I have. And have you looked at all the laboratory reports and supplements of the analysis conducted in this case by the Harris County Institute of Forensic Sciences and the Department of Public Safety with respect to DNA testing? Yes, sir. Have you looked at the life insurance policy information on Jamie Melgar and Sandra Melgar? Yes, sir. Have you looked at all the cell phone and computer analysis of the Melgar's computers and phones conducted by the regional laboratory here in Harris County that does that kind of work? Yes, sir. Have you looked at the probable cause or DIMS summary prepared by Carazal? Yes. DIMS, do you know what that stands for? I don't. It's part of the charging mechanism through Harris County Clerk's Office and Harris County District Attorney's Office. DIMS is the computer system that all the charging information is inputted into. Okay, have you looked at the videotape of the fluorescein process by the Harris County Sheriff's Department? Yes, sir. Have you looked at the security footage from the Esmond residence at 9539 Kelsey Meadows Court? Yes, sir. Have you looked at the report of the examination of Sandra Melgar on December 27, 2012 by Dr. Enrique Granda? Yes, sir. Have you seen the EMS records pertaining to Sandra Melgar? Yes, sir. Have you looked at the Harris County Sheriff's Department Regional Firearms Identification Laboratory Report? Yes, sir. 
Have you looked at the Harris County Sheriff's Department CSU Unit Standard Operating Procedures? Yes, sir. Have you looked at the Harris County Sheriff's Department Homicide Unit Standard Operating Procedures? Yes, sir. Have you looked at the information concerning one, not his real name, Randy? Yes, sir. Did I make it explicitly clear to you that you could be privy at any time to anything in my file to review the evidence to become familiar with the facts in this case? Yes, sir. When was it that I asked you to review the evidence in this case? May of 2015. Did you provide me no guarantee that your assistance or your opinion would necessarily benefit me? Did I provide you any guarantee? No, sir. Did you basically tell me that you would be glad to get involved and look at it, but you would call it the way you see it? Yes, sir. So there you have it. Before we even get into his conclusions, Billy Belk has already demonstrated that he did far more work on the investigation into Jim's death than the detectives assigned to the case ever did. Let's not forget that they never interviewed any of the family members or friends. They never looked into Sandy's medical records, never looked into their finances or life insurance, never looked into the EMS report, or even reviewed the interview transcripts of Herman and Maria. Mr. Belk conducted a full and thorough investigation. This is the way that it should be done. And Belk has some things to say about the manner in which the Harris County Sheriff's Office conducted their investigation. From the transcript. Mac, if you could use a single phrase to describe the investigation of Sandra Melgar for the murder of her husband, Jamie Melgar, what would that single phrase be? Belk, unconscionable. Mac, and why do you say that? Belk, the manner and means in which the investigation was conducted both from the crime scene investigation to neighborhood canvas to the focus on one suspect and ignoring others is unconscionable in my personal opinion based on my years of experience and based on my entire review of this case. Mac, did you see any indication that these investigators were trying to make the facts fit their theory? Absolutely. Mac then moves into Belk's conclusion with the point of entry into the crime scene. He believes that the open garage door was an obvious point of entry and that it was ignored by Carazal. Quote, Everything pointed to the open garage door. And to ignore that, you're ignoring common sense. End quote. When asked if he thinks that the detectives blew off the idea of the garage door being the point of entry for the home invaders, this was Belk's response. Quote, Based on the questions and answers, you know, it was obvious to me plus the lack of collecting any physical evidence into the interior door and photographing it like they did the windows, front door, and back door, either it was an oversight or incompetence or intentionally ignoring a key piece of entry into the house. Key piece of evidence. End quote. Think about that for a second. Belk really puts this into perspective. Carazal, Doucet, and Carpenter arrive at the scene of a homicide. The garage door is wide open and the interior door is unlocked. Knowing that, they take dozens of photos of the front and back doors and every window in the house, but don't even give the one point of ingress where they know where someone could have entered the house a second thought. I'm having a hard time believing that this could possibly be a mistake. As Belk said, that was a key piece of evidence and it wasn't important at all to the investigators. We'll be right back. 
With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Belk goes on to dissect the original investigation. Now, I'm not going to waste your time by beating a dead horse for four hours. I really don't think that there's any question at this point that the original investigation was pathetic. Even Doucet admits to that. So I'm not going to talk about all of the screw-ups that Belk cites. But there are a few that I hadn't thought about before. As an example, the contents of the Melgar's wallets were scattered on the bed. Carpenter never swabbed any of it for DNA. And this is an area where we know that if this was a home invasion, the offenders definitely touched. And then there's also the mop and bucket. Carpenter gave it a smell test and did no further investigation or testing. Essentially, what we're seeing is that the Harris County Sheriff's failed to properly investigate or test lots of items on the crime scene, and then Barnett uses their incompetence to spin a theory to the jury. The mop is a perfect example. Carpenter doesn't collect the bucket, mop, or water as evidence. There's no way that we can know if the mop was used to do anything besides cleaning up puppy piss. But then Carpenter's failure to do his job is used as ammunition against Sandy at trial. The mop could have been used to clean up blood. Sandy can't defend against that theory because Carpenter failed to collect the proof. One nice thing about Billy Belk is that you always know what he's thinking. He's not a mincer of words. Mac, we heard some testimony about the bloody safe handle. What is your opinion as to the way that was conducted? Belk, gross negligence, incompetence. Not a, at least get a DNA swab of the blood that was on the handle. It's unheard of. I'm dumbfounded as to why it was never done. Tell us how you really feel, Billy. Don't hold back. Belk touches on something that I asked Allison Seacrest about a few months ago. The coax cable that runs from the homemade antenna in the master bedroom to the table where the TV was supposed to be. Carpenter didn't do anything with this cord, which is tragic. If I had to guess, I would say that it's very likely that our home invaders were wearing gloves and possibly masks. Because of this, we don't have a lot of opportunities where they could have left something behind. Fingerprints or skin cells. Had Carpenter swabbed or even collected the antenna and cord into evidence, we would have a fantastic place to swab for touch DNA. I'm sure that most of you at one time or another have unscrewed a coax cable from the back of a TV. It's a pain in the ass. They're usually tight and it's hard to get your fingers onto them. Even if our unsub was wearing gloves, I believe that they would have had to have taken them off in order to unscrew the antenna cord from the TV. And since it's such a pain unscrewing those connections, that would be a prime place, maybe even the best place in the house to check for skin cells that sloughed off during the process. This was a huge miss by Carpenter, but I'm not giving up on it yet. Liz has stored a lot of her mother's belongings into a storage shed. She's not sure if the antenna is in there, 
But on my next trip to Houston, we're going to go look. And if it's in there, we'll have a forensic specialist swab it for touch DNA. Mac moves on to discuss Carazal and Duce's failure to properly investigate not his real name, Randy. Then he moves on to talk about the interrogation techniques used on Sandy. He's asking Belk about the use of leading question, and Barnett gets a pretty clever objection in here. From the transcript, Mac. So if you're really trying to be objective and trying to acquire information, you would want to basically ask open-ended questions. Belk. Absolutely. Barnett. And I would object that these are leading questions. The judge. Sustained. But Barnett is not the only one who gets in some zingers during this testimony. Mac. Did you see signs of deception in the officer's interrogation of Sandra Melgar? Belk. Only on the part of the detectives that were conducting the interrogation. Mac does something interesting while discussing the number of wounds that Jim sustained during the attack. He actually got into the jewelry box with Belk and mimicked stabbing and hitting him 50 times, counting out the number of the hits with each blow. One, two, three, four, five all the way up to 50. I wish I could have seen this demonstration, because I have to believe that it should have been effective. The point Mac and Belk are making is that this was a brutal and prolonged attack. Belk is fighting back as Seacrest is striking him. It would seem to me that that would have been a great way for the jury to really understand the improbability of Sandy committing this crime without sustaining any injuries herself. Belk goes on to explain what he would expect to see on the hands of whoever attacked and killed Jim. From the transcript. I'm seeing that her nails are all intact and not broken. I'm not seeing, with the handling of a large blade knife when you're using significant force that goes 3 or 4 inches to 2 to 3 inches deep, hitting vital organs, you'd expect to see bruising from handling the weapon or knife. You'd potentially see cuts from the knife because if you imagine a stab wound, every stab wound gets a react from the blood. And human blood is very slimy and slippery, so it's hard to hold the knife, especially when you're in that close contact without the knife slipping and cutting you or getting a cut from the knife. So it's essential to look at bruising, whether there's cuts, significant injuries too. Because in my opinion, the assailant's going to have significant injuries because of the close contact hand-to-hand combat. As Belk goes on, it's genuinely hard for me to understand how the jury didn't give his testimony the weight that it deserved. Up to this point, we've heard nothing but speculation from all of the other witnesses. No evidence that Sandy actually committed the murder. Only possible scenarios wherein she possibly could have. It's all smoke and mirrors. But Belk, on the other hand, is testifying with confidence based on actual evidence. This isn't, I didn't see tears type testimony. He's hitting the jury with some real knowledge and experience. Let me give you an example. The bruise on Sandy's left arm. During her interrogation, either Doucet or Carazal referred to this bruise as a wraparound bruise. He then makes the implication that this bruise is indicative of something nefarious. Belk, however, is not beating around the bush. He's seen a lot of these types of bruises before, and he knows exactly how they're caused. He testifies that during his five years working in the Internal Affairs Division, he investigated a lot of police brutality cases. He goes on to explain that when police officers put someone on the ground, face down, and cuff their hands behind their backs, the officers will then grab the person by the arms to manipulate their position, oftentimes to help them stand up after they're cuffed. Quote, 
In many of the cases that I investigated while internal affairs, people would complain on police officers and consider bruising like that as police brutality. End quote. Again, Mac demonstrates for the jury. He has Belk lay down on the ground with his hands behind his back and grabs him by the arm. Then Mac shows Belk a photo of the bruise on Sandy's arm and asks, quote, Is that injury there consistent with being grabbed by the arm from behind? Belk. Yes, sir. If you've ever wondered why I so staunchly believe in Sandy's innocence and I'm so determined to find Jim's real killer, this is why. When you move past all the speculation and theories and simply look at the evidence, everything points to this being a home invasion. Everything. The garage door was open and there was no evidence that it was ever closed after the Melgars came home. The house is ransacked and there is no way to prove that this was staging. Rossi says the house looks staged. Jim Clemente says it doesn't. In fact, his opinion is that the scene is full of counter indications of staging. The assault on Jim was brutal and long-lasting, but Sandy has no injuries consistent with participating in that fight. Now, I realize that my experience and education is limited, but I've yet to find a single case, and I've looked, where a victim sustained an attack like this and the attacker didn't so much as break a nail. Jim Clemente has never seen anything like it either, and his training and experience might just outweigh mine just a tad. Everyone agrees that Jim's killer would have been covered in blood, but Sandy doesn't have a drop on her, and there is zero evidence that she cleaned blood off of herself. Only speculation as to how she might have. Sandy was bound in a way that is seemingly impossible for someone in her condition to have self-applied. Now, people have proven that it is possible for some people to bind themselves in this manner, but no one has proven that Sandy could. Most people can't. At trial, Herman Melgar had to show the position of Sandy's arms in front of his body and explain verbally that her arms were behind her back. Mac tried to demonstrate, and couldn't. Eventually, he had to have the much younger and more flexible Allison Seacrest demonstrate for the jury, because no one else could do it. There was evidence of items missing from the home, and the detectives were given a list of missing items, but what they don't have is any proof or evidence that the items weren't stolen. None of Sandy's DNA was found on Jim, and none of Jim's on Sandy. There was, however, unknown DNA found on the closet doorknob and on Sandy's bindings, as well as several other places around the crime scene. There is zero evidence that Sandy had any motive whatsoever to kill Jim. And to the contrary, all parties agree that Sandy and Jim had an extremely loving and happy marriage, and Sandy relied on Jim to take care of her. The only way that the detectives could explain how Sandy could have barricaded herself into the closet was if she used the pillow sham under the door to pull the chair up under the knob. But the problem is, there's no evidence that Sandy actually did this. The sham wasn't found under the chair or in the closet, and Herman stated repeatedly that the sham was not under the chair when he removed it. Any theory to the contrary is nothing other than imagination and speculation, trying to force evidence to fit a theory. And then we have the bruise on Sandy's arm that we just discussed. A man with extraordinary experience and training testified in no uncertain terms that this type of bruise is caused by someone being grabbed by the arm from behind, while their arms are restrained behind their back. Everything, and I mean everything, points to this crime being committed by home invaders. There is literally not one shred of evidence. Let me repeat, evidence. Not theoretical speculations, but evidence. There is not a single piece of evidence that suggests that Jim was murdered by his wife.
Belk goes on to say the same thing that I said many months ago. Rossi claimed that the fact that there was no blood trail leading out of the closet area suggests that Sandy killed Jim. My opinion was, and still is, that it doesn't matter who killed Jim. Someone, whether it was Sandy or a stranger, left that closet area without leaving a blood trail. This is what Mr. Belk had to say about the subject. Quote, The assailant is going to have blood on them, whether whoever's theory you want to believe, whether the assailant exited the house or cleaned themselves up inside the house. But... With the scenario that law enforcement is trying to establish, you're going to see traces of that. End quote. So Belk goes a little further than I did. Not only does the lack of blood trail not point to any one suspect, but he says that if Sandy cleaned herself up in the house, that would have left evidence behind. My takeaway is that the lack of blood trail is indicative of not only an outsider killing Jim, but that there were multiple offenders in the home. If Sandy was covered in blood, she would have to get to the bathroom on the white carpet, without leaving a trace, which is seemingly impossible. But if Jim's killer was standing in the doorway of the closet covered in blood, and they had a partner or partners in the house with them, they would have help. Someone grabs a couple towels from the bathroom while the killer removes her bloody shirt. And yes, I did say her. Her partner hands her the towels to clean herself up and takes the knife, shirt, and towels and throws them into the tub after she cleans up. They grab another shirt from the closet for her to throw on, and they get the hell out of there, without leaving a trace of blood anywhere in the house, because she had help cleaning up before she left the closet area. And that is the only way that I can make sense of the killer walking away from that brutal and bloody scene without getting a drop of blood anywhere. At this point, I'm exactly halfway through Billy Belk's testimony, and I don't want to sell his work short. I had hoped to get through all of this testimony this week, but we're running long and full disclosure, I'm putting this episode together on a cruise ship and Becky is not exactly thrilled about it. So this will be the conclusion of this week's episode. I'll finish up with Belk's testimony next week, and after that, prepare to have your mind blown when I share the details given to me by one of the survivors of the Kingwood home invasion. That's in two weeks on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. 
And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. Keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro. Driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.